This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Social Justice, Physician Responsibility, and Resource Allocation in the NICU by Dr. Sadith Saeed. Hello, my name is Sadith Saeed. I'm an assistant professor for global health and social medicine at Harvard Medical School, and I'm an attending neonatologist at Boston Children's Hospital. And I'm going to speak to you today about the subject of scarce resource allocation and so social justice. Introduction. Uh, this is a very broad subject uh, with um, really large uh, ethical and moral concerns and also ones that impact uh, the daily uh, lives of both uh, patients and practitioners, uh, institutions and systems. Uh, so uh, for dealing with a subject matter like this, it has to be uh, introductory at this level. And my goal today will be just to highlight a few key uh, issues by case illustration, and I'm going to discuss um, a framework or two for ethical analysis. Uh, I hope to highlight um, some tensions that are inherent when you're talking about things like scarce resources and uh, social justice, uh, and I'm going to try my best to uh, have, it, uh, have some applicability to the neonatal uh, medicine practice. Case scenario. So let's start with a case to um, uh, get our, uh, a sense of uh, an issue in resource allocation. And, and I'm going to start with a case where I uh, think the conditions of scarcity are uh, real, certainly in uh, this day and age. So the case is as follows. Imagine that there are four patients in need of a liver transplant. So the scarce resource is obviously the liver. Uh, one is uh, available, and it, and it is a match for the f uh, following four patients. The first patient is a 65-year-old patient with chronic hepatitis C. Uh, he is in the ICU, and he is very sick and very, very close to death, meaning that he's uh, within a few days, maybe a week or two, on maximal life support. So very sick and desperately in need of the, the transplant. The next patient is a 45-year-old patient, uh, female, who um, has cirrhosis of the liver due to uh, uh, alcoholism. And um, she's in a different uh, <clears throat> degree of illness at this point. She probably has several months to live uh, based on uh, her current uh, medical status, but uh, definitely uh, is in the last stages of her life overall if she doesn't receive the transplant. The next patient is a 30-year-old physician who suddenly uh, developed acute liver failure from a hepatitis A infection while doing humanitarian work abroad. And under the current situation, this patient has a few weeks uh, based on uh, his current status to live if he doesn't get a liver transplant. And the last patient to consider is a four-month-old, so a baby, with uh, neonatal congenital hemochromatosis. Uh, and this is a, a baby who um, is currently in the ICU and based on how this uh, little girl is doing right now, probably has several weeks to months uh, to live uh, without a transplant. So those are your four patients and you can think about 
what could be the operating uh, rules to decide which of these four very uh, needy patients should get uh, a scarce resource like a liver in order to save their life. Resource allocation. So how do we decide this problem? Well, you can imagine that there are a lot of different uh, uh, ideas and principles that have been thrown out there, and almost all of these have been uh, argued for at some point or the other based on uh, the rationale that seems compelling. So let me just share with you a few of the ideas that have uh, been tossed around to deal with this allocation problem. The first would be just to do a lottery, meaning you just put their names in a hat and you put a number on each name and you uh, pick out the one and it's strictly everybody has an equal chance of, of being the one who receives the liver. That sounds fair to uh, many people and it seems like there's a fairness principle that might be elevated if we choose that route. Another way to decide would be first come first serve. So who was the first one in the hospital and therefore uh, they get the first right of the, the uh, transplant. And uh, while this may make sense in a more uh, commercial setting, sort of you're going to a concert and there's, it's going to be a sold-out concert and the person who gets up the earliest to wait in line uh, has somehow earned the right to get the first, uh, first ticket or the best seat, uh, doesn't probably carry as much resonance in the context of a life-saving therapy like a liver. And so while this has been often uh, suggested as a rationale, it probably lacks some of the ethical um, uh, backbone that we're looking for in, in a situation uh, like this. How about the most in need? In other words, the sickest patient. Uh, so this is obviously something that does carry resonance in, in the context of providing medical care. We often think that the patient who is the sickest deserves the most attention and the most quickest access to treatment in order to save their life. There's obviously some good reasons for thinking that way because if we can save a life and we can do it uh, uh, when the outcome is going to be death very quickly, that's a very strong moral rationale to think about saving that life and prioritizing the sickest. How about something like the probability of survival with the transplant? So this is not just, uh, this is not looking at how sick they are, but say you have somebody who is two people who are very, very sick. One will, with the transplant, will live, uh, you, the survival chances with the transplant are uh, 80%. And for the other patient who has the exact same condition, just as sick, uh, no other differences, but for whatever reason, their chances of survival with the transplant is only 50%. Should we prioritize the patient who has an 80% chance of survival versus the patient with a 50% chance of survival? Well, that's a, that, there, there seems to be some rationale behind that because you want the scarce resource to be the most efficacious. But is it really treating the patient with the 50% chance of survival fairly when we do that? Let me just step back for a second and say the goal in this conversation is not to give you a definitive answer. It's important for you to think about these challenges and uh, struggle with them. And you'll see as we go through the conversation that, that there aren't necessarily clean and neat answers to problems like this. So people do think that the probability of survival should factor into our calculus for deciding who gets a transplant in cases like this. But how much weight you give it is not necessarily determined. How about the duration of benefit? So this is a little different from the probability of survival. Now we're talking about something like the number of life years extended. So if you go back to our case, should we prioritize a baby who potentially could live for 80 years if she gets the transplant? Uh, 
versus the 65-year-old who maybe only will live 10 years and has lived a full life and has a narrative of a life that's fully lived. Maybe, the, maybe he has grandchildren, has really had many of the life experiences that uh, we look for in terms of saying this is a life that's been well lived. Um, again, controversial area. We'll come back to this a little later, and it's not clear. There's certainly not consensus about whether there should be priority uh, attached to the number of life years saved. Another area of controversy, the quality of life years saved. So, what do I mean by that? Imagine that we have a patient who has, unfortunately, in addition to the need for a liver, new liver, also um, devastating comorbidity involving uh, their cognitive capacity or their neurologic function. And we have another patient with the same, all things are, else are equal, but they don't have that problem. They have uh, relatively normal cognition. They have a job. They're successfully in a successful career, whereas the first patient um, is dependent on others to care for himself. Should that matter? So the quality of life, we say objectively, uh, as somebody who's not living that life, appears to be worse for the patient who has severe neurologic disability versus the person who doesn't. Should that factor into our equa equation? Again, no surprise, this is a controversial uh, idea. It does have some resonance in our practice and the way we think about the distribution of scarce resources, but again, it's not at all settled how much priority this should get in that distribution scheme. Another area is the costs and resources associated with life extension. So what do we mean by that? Imagine again you have two patients, one of whom if they get the transplant it will also cost hundreds of thousands of dollars going forward to keep them uh, alive because of other comorbidities. Whereas another patient, once you do the transplant, it will cost uh, much less than that. Uh, or they won't need as much uh, uh, help or intervention after the transplant, assuming it's successful. Should that factor into our equation? Again, controversial area. That's the catchphrase for this talk. Lots of controversy, very few settled answers. Um, and uh, people will debate how much that should factor into our thinking about uh, the allocation of a scarce resource. Last two uh, factors that people have mentioned, again, that uh, are controversial. One is personal responsibility. So what do we mean by that? Well, if we go back to the case I uh, illustrated the, the idea with, we have a patient who has alcoholism. Does that matter? Does the fact that the patient has tried to uh, go through um, rehab uh, uh, and abstinence uh, programs and has not been successful. Should that factor into it? What if they refused to do those kinds of things and said, this is my choice, I choose to be an alcoholic and I, can't do any I don't want to do anything about it? Would that factor or should that factor into our decision making? Again, we'll touch, well, I'll come back to this in a little bit, but I, I will, you can imagine that this is a controversial area where people often have very strong opinions about uh, the allocation of scarce resources. The last one I'll put out there for you to consider is social worth. So I mentioned in our case a physician who uh, is out there doing humanitarian work in addition to whatever else he or she is uh, doing in service of the community uh, at her local hospital. Should that factor into the uh, equation? A, a physician or somebody who's a successful employer of many, many people or some other community, community leader, do they deserve some priority over somebody with the exact same condition and exact same medical need who is homeless or is 
marginalized for other reasons. You can imagine an area of controversy, people, believe it or not, think that that maybe should factor into it, but uh, I will suggest later on that that's, uh, generally speaking, not considered a, 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 an adequate um, criteria for the allocation of scarce resources. So that's a, certainly not an exhaustive, but a pretty um, extensive list of um, factors that people often uh, think about, at least in, initially, when uh, they're thinking about how do we allocate a scarce resource like a liver. Guidelines and Principles In the case of organ uh, sharing, we actually have developed really um, strong guidelines uh, and official guidance that um, really govern the allocation of, uh, of organs in the United States. And it, the, the uh, guidance comes from a nonprofit organization that manages the organ sharing program for the federal government, so it has the backing of our government, and it's called the United Network for Organ Sharing, or UNOS, or UNOS. So UNOS is made up of uh, physicians, policymakers, experts in this domain, ethicists, believe it or not, and other folks who, community leaders, uh, who uh, all the stakeholders that you would think would be relevant to this conversation, patients, um, uh, patient advocacy groups. So uh, they have uh, come up with a system and a set of principles to guide how we think about uh, allocating um, organs to many, many patients who have the, potentially the same need. There's a scoring system that I'll talk about briefly in a little bit, uh, and, uh, and there's uh, a system that's in place for adults, and that's generally meant to be 12 and over, and children, which is generally meant to be 11 and under. There are three principles. The first principle is a principle of utility. The second principle is a principle of justice. And the last principle is a principle for respect for persons or autonomy. So what do we mean by utility? Let me just say that utility is a very complicated uh, uh, concept. We're going to keep it simple for the purposes of this talk and just think of utility as a maxim to maximize the good for the most people. Even with that simple idea, you have to decide there's a complicated part of that, and that is, is what is good. And so, assuming we can agree on good, then the benefit, the, the, the principle that operates here is, is that we ought to take whatever good we have and maximize its, its use in, uh, in thinking about how we uh, allocate uh, resources. So if we can benefit 100 people versus one person, uh, a principle of utility would say, uh, it, with the same intervention, the principle of utility would say, let's maximize the good for 100 people because 100 people benefiting from this good is better than one person. Simple, straightforward application. Life is messier than that, but you get the idea. So in the case of organ transplants and UNOS's guidance, they say some of the factors that we ought to consider when we're thinking about a principle of utility is uh, the likelihood of patient survival, the likelihood of graft survival, meaning the likelihood that the organ will actually uh, take in the person, the quality of life, uh, the availability of alternate treatments, and the age of the patient. So all of these categories are just parts of a complicated equation. None of them speak specifically to maximizing good, but they are factors that when we're thinking about maximizing good, uh, the, the network wants us to think about in, in terms of utility. Just as importantly, and perhaps more importantly, the network has specifically uh, articulated that 
con certain considerations of utility will never be considered. Well, I shouldn't say never, but certainly not, not included in this day and age. And those are social worth. We talked about that uh, before. Social worth such as a value of somebody's instrumental value to somebody in society, being a successful uh, leader in the community or a physician, uh, or their status, they're a famous politician or a celebrity or a baseball player, you can think of Mickey Mantle. Those things ought not to and will not currently factor into our uh, consideration of uh, scarce allocation of resources. Even if we think somebody is instrumentally more valuable to a community or a society based on how they're, what they're doing currently as, uh, as their occupation or however they're engaged in the society, that doesn't trump somebody else who doesn't share that social worth or value uh, just because of the social worth or value. So that's an important uh, stopping point for thinking about utility. The same, uh, in the same area, even if it was the case that uh, uh, factors such as your race or your gender or your socioeconomic status statistically predicted that an organ was less likely to be successful because you were a woman, because you were uh, Asian, because you came from poverty, and it would be more likely that the organ would take and they would have a longer survival if you were Caucasian or if you were a male or if you were um, in a high income status. So the utility equation in that situation is, is that there's a maximized, you're maximizing the good by having the organ live, the person live longer. The principles uh, within the United Network uh, for Organ Sharing absolutely exclude those considerations. So again, taking out what might be thought of as a utility factor from the equation of deciding who gets the resource. Second principle we talked about is justice, or we mentioned, and, and so justice is equally, if not more so, a complicated idea than, uh, than is um, utility. Uh, again, lots of treatises being written about what justice actually means. We want to keep it simple here. And there are two concepts that, will, uh, that are important to think about. One is treating equals equally. The other one, which has problems, and I'll get to that a little later in our talk, I think more useful and more practical in terms of a, a working uh, tool is the idea of fairness. So if we talk about justice, we want to think about how is something being fairly distributed uh, amongst people who have equal claim to that good. So fairness is the operating principle. Again, in the case of uh, the organ network, um, the factors that they want us to think about in developing a system of allocation are medical urgency, so meaning how sick is the patient, the likelihood of finding a suitable organ in the future, the waiting list time, uh, first versus repeat transplants. So you can imagine in that case if somebody has had two transplants and they've both failed after a certain amount of time, should, is there a fairness consideration for somebody who hasn't had a transplant yet? Age again comes up, so notice how age factors into both justice and utility. And then there's this notion of geographical fairness. If somebody lives in rural Alabama versus metropolitan Boston, is it really fair just because the person is farther away from the possibility of having uh, a transplant at an advanced transplant center? Is that fair? Should we think about that? Of course, the, the notion here is, is that it isn't fair. And the fact that you are geographically in an unfair place, uh, you shouldn't be penalized for that. 
The last principle uh, to consider is respect for persons. And this is the least sort of directly applicable to these uh, situations of scarce organ transplantation. But for the sake of, of uh, completion, we'll, we'll mention that it is part of the, uh, the uh, discussion in, from the United Network for Organ Sharing. And so the things that they mentioned that should be considered are the duty to respect decisions of donors or those who refuse to donate an organ, the right to refuse an organ, free exchanges amongst autonomous individuals. So what does that mean? It means uh, an allocation by a directed donation. A family member decides to give his or her uh, organ uh, or share his or her organ to somebody that they love. Respect for person says we can't, we ought not to um, discourage that. We, we should respect that uh, generosity uh, by the person and not say if you're going to give an organ we get to decide, meaning we, the state, the society, gets to decide where that organ goes to. And then lastly, what does respect for persons entail? It entails being transparent about the processes and the allocation rules to enable everyone, all of the stakeholders, to make informed decisions. So there shouldn't be any secrecy uh, behind how an organ gets transplanted because secrecy leads to distrust and distrust uh, is disrespectful to people. It's really, really important, and you've probably already figured out, that these principles coexist in conflict. You can't always maximize utility and respect justice concerns. Uh, and that's really the primary conflict when you think about organ transplants. It's important, and that's okay. It's also important to know that it's okay that principles conflict. That's the nature of human values. They're not always aligned with one another. The key for the, uh, scarce al the allocation of a scarce resource like a, uh, a, um, a, an organ is that justice generally, justice considerations, get preference. And it's clear in the way that we have developed a scoring system. So the scoring system uh, for adults is called the model for end-stage liver disease, and for pediatrics it's called the pediatric end-stage liver disease. And that's the acronyms for both of those are MELD, M-E-L-D, and PELD, P-E-L-D. Uh, the main thing to know, you don't have to master these scoring systems. You can look them up uh, very easily. But the, the scoring systems are objective laboratory-based data that allow anybody to look at uh, the, um, the indicators and develop a score and then compare two or three or five people in need of an allocation of, a, of an organ and decide who is the sickest based on that scoring system and deciding who gets priority based on that scoring system. So the MELD score uh, includes the bilirubin, the creatinine, and the INR or PT clotting time. And again, as we said, those are just basic objective laboratory measures that every patient can have drawn and determined. And based on how abnormal they are, you will, it will equate you with a score. In the pediatric case, it is bilirubin uh, and albumin and growth failure whether, and whether your age is less than one year and also, uh, as in the case of MELD, um, your uh, INR. So slightly different scoring scale to address uh, things that are peculiar to pediatrics than uh, the MELD score. But again, the idea is you have objective laboratory criteria to develop a system that is statistically derived to predict who, has, who is the sickest and most likely to die in a certain amount of time. And this is based on 
data that's been generated from thousands of patients. So it's pretty robust and pretty predictable, but not perfect like any system. Uh, again, the take-home message here is, is that in hard cases, reasonable people can and do disagree. And we shouldn't shy away from the fact that it's okay for people to disagree about these hard cases. And in those hard cases, um, we have principles that help illuminate a discussion, but they don't solve uh, always with satisfaction. There's always going to be a trade-off uh, in cases like uh, that are hard. It is a sickest first system, meaning that it prioritizes this notion of justice, uh, and it also assumes that if you are sick, if you are more sick, you're sort of taking a bet that the people who are less sick we can keep alive for a longer period of time and so that if they get sicker, eventually, hopefully, within a reasonable time frame, they will get access to the organ because they will move up the system. They will get, as they get sicker, their likelihood of getting the organ is going to be increased. So the fairness is built in that way. The sicker you are, the more likely you're going to get the organ. The less sick you are, the less likely. And fairness fil filters in by, be, by, by uh, equa equalizing people as they get sicker. The controversy around this system, and it is controversial, there are certain people and certain thoughtful uh, advocates uh, who have thought a lot about these uh, situations who suggest that uh, this isn't the most efficacious use of a scarce resource. So what this means is, is that we won't necessarily factor in things like we talked about before, how long somebody would live when they got the transplant. So if you have somebody in our, go back to our case, the 65-year-old who is the sickest will likely have the highest MELD score, and they are most likely to get the transplant based on that, even though they may only have 5, 10, 15 years to live, assuming that the likelihood of the graft survival is uh, reasonable, meaning not, it's not a complete waste of, a, of the opportunity, uh, and I won't give a quanti quantifiable number for that, but imagine that there's a very good chance that the liver will take, and that the patient will live for some period of time, that's the primary consideration. The other folks who have weeks or months to live have to wait. Uh, and in all likelihood, that's how that case would actually play out. There, obviously, you could make permutations on the case and, and you know, uh, facts and, and specifics matter. But for the purposes of, of thinking about general rules, the sickest generally get priority in the cases of organ transplants in our country. And that is elevating, again, a notion of justice and fairness over other concerns. It doesn't mean that utility considerations can't uh, bump people out of it, uh, but in general, this is, the, this is the first line of thinking. Let me suggest to you that one case that often gets people uh, emotionally charged is when we talk about uh, uh, giving a, a, a liver to somebody who has an addiction like alcoholism and, and that person doesn't seem to be able or willing to go through uh, the required changes in their choices of using alcohol or substances uh, in order to be a beneficiary. Somehow the notion of personal responsibility, well, they're responsible for their alcoholism. And we compare that to somebody like our physician who seems to be you know, committed to doing good in society. People get upset that we might give the liver to the alcoholic versus somebody who's got more quote-unquote social worth and doesn't carry that same stigma of personal responsibility for their sickness. Take a pause here and just tell you that while that narrative sometimes resonates with people, it is a very, very, um, I think, problematic narrative because 
Our thinking about alcoholism and substance abuse in general has changed dramatically over the last uh, decade or two, and that's a good thing because alcoholism and any substance use is really a disease. It's an addiction. It is physiological. And to dismiss somebody's alcoholism as their choice is really um, shortchanging uh, the, the biology of addiction. And thankfully, we've come to that understanding. It doesn't mean people still don't get upset about it, but I think that as providers of care, we have to step back from that temptation and recognize that alcoholism and other substance use is an addictive disease. And that changes the narrative of autonomy and choice. It's not simply that an alcoholic can choose to keep drinking. They're addicted, and we have to recognize that. And we have to provide resources for them to manage their addiction rather than blaming them for, uh, for that disease. So that's, uh, that's a, a note on the idea of personal responsibility. So let me lastly turn when we're talking about scarce resources to its applicability to neonatal medicine. Uh, and thankfully, I can tell you that uh, the issue of organ transplantations in, in uh, babies is extremely infrequent. The most common uh, organ transplant uh, is either the kidney or the liver. Uh, and in most cases, it's rarely a um, life-threatening crisis in the neonatal period, meaning within the first month of life. Occasionally it is, uh, but rarely is it the case that a baby must have a liver within the first month of life. Often they can be sustained on life support for weeks and months, uh, and they fall into the same scoring system, the PELD system, that will eventually get them a transplant. It is also the case that it is very, more often than not, that babies and in neonatology will be the beneficiaries of directed donation from family members and loved ones. The challenges of thinking about the ethics of allocating uh, scarce resources for babies is not nearly as sort of um, uh, intense or worrisome as it is in the larger framework for thinking about it on a societal level. Let me um, turn now to a different case and the reason for doing this is just to highlight one more principle that has been put out uh, in recent years by uh, ethicists and, and uh, thinkers in this area about how to allocate scarce resources. And I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I want to uh, just, uh, for completeness sake, have you have heard of this. It's an influential but controversial argument. And imagine that we had, rather than the uh, allocation of a scarce resource like uh, a, a liver, we had a pandemic. So one of the reasons this idea gained some traction in um, the bioethical and medical literature in recent years was when we had the flu um, scare, the flu pandemic scare a few years back. Uh, lots of uh, communities and countries and uh, uh, societies were all thinking about, well, how are we going to manage if there really is a life-threatening flu that could wipe out hundreds of millions, if not tens of millions of lives, um, and we don't have enough resources in the hospitals uh, or in our communities to manage that, and we only have a certain amount of medication. How ought we allocate that if we're really in a pandemic crisis? Uh, a group of, of Influential uh, physicians and uh, bioethicists uh, from the NIH uh, suggested that we might think about a principle called fair innings or life years. The reason why it's relevant to the discussion of neonatology because it actually suggests that and it, it argues for purposefully discounting life that cannot value itself. Uh, or life that has full, lived a full trajectory. So fair innings is the idea that 
If you've lived a long life, you've had your fair share of life, and therefore your priority for a scarce resource should necessarily be discounted. That may uh, resonate with a lot of people. The part that is less, and it may not resonate with some people, but the part that is much more controversial is discounting uh, life that cannot value itself. And what do we mean by that? Well, we often think of, typically we think of babies as not necessarily having um, purposeful consciousness yet in the neonatal period. They have brain activity, they have, are developing neuronal connections that are critically important for future life, but they're not interacting or communicating with us um, like uh, toddlers are and older children, obviously adults do. And so their consciousness or lack thereof of consciousness in the way that we think about consciousness uh, is a strike against them in the context of allocating a scarce resource. So how does this play out in a pandemic? Well, it would be a curve. It would be essentially like a bell curve. The people who are prioritized the most are those who uh, are out of infancy and uh, uh, um, uh, are moving into adolescence and into early adulthood. And there's a natural tail as you get closer to the end of life. And so priority for a scarce resource in a pandemic would follow this fair innings or life years uh, account. Reducing scarce resources. The last bit I want to um, talk about in terms of scarce resources uh, and the pur uh, for the purposes of, of uh, this discussion is, is uh, it's a step back question, and that is, is that what creates conditions of scarcity to begin with? So in the case of organs, it feels like it's pretty straightforward. Not everybody, uh, we need our organs to live, and it's a pretty onerous and scary idea to be uh, donating our organs, even if we don't need two kidneys. Not everybody wants to sign up to give one away, so we created a bigger supply. But our system is very much oriented towards people actively choosing to donate and having to make a, a deliberate, thoughtful decision right off the bat uh, and opt into the decision to volunteer. And that uh, reflects our commitment to this idea of respect for persons. But you can think about ways to reduce the scarcity. And these are, again, controversial ideas, but ones that are important for you to think about at the macro level. We don't pay people to donate organs. Other countries have begun to do that. And whether you think that's a terrible idea or a good idea, it is a way to create less scarcity. Uh, and it's something that um, uh, again, thoughtful people have said, well, what's really the resistance to doing that? Uh, if it only sort of preyed upon the lowest socioeconomic classes, we would obviously have worries about justice in that case. But if we could make it a system where people who really could autonomously and not feeling coerced to, to pay, maybe there would be a way to increase our resources, of, uh, uh, our scarce resources that way. So the other less controversial idea is, uh, but still controversial, is something like an opt-out nudge. And what does that mean? It means that, well, currently our system, whether it's through driver's licenses or uh, some other uh, official mechanism, you choose to be a volunteer, uh, a donor, uh, at the time of your death if it's unexpected, or you write it into your will, or you express that. But you could imagine a different system where the default for our community or our societies is that everybody is presumed to be a donor and you have to actively choose not to be a donor. So it actually requires a little bit of activation energy to say, I'm not going to be a donor. Uh, and the argument is, is that 
uh, it's neutral. It still respects autonomy. People still have a choice. Nobody's forced to being an organ donator, but they have to take the time and effort to think about it and make a decision not to do it. So the default is to create less conditions of scarcity. Interesting idea, again, not, um, uh, not uh, gaining a lot of, uh, currently anyways, um, uh, ground at a policy level or a political level in our society, but something that is uh, discussed regularly and routinely, and I suspect will continue to be a topic of conversation. Social justice. So we're going to uh, turn now to if that wasn't complicated enough, an even more complicated subject, and that is the idea of justice and social justice in particular. So I mentioned before that we simplistically might think of justice as an idea about fairness and how do we address fairness in a society that is full of inequity and full of inequality and in, in ways uh, that people with more means or by luck have more access to better health care and people who have left mean, less means or bad luck may have less access to good and adequate health care. How do we account for that and how do we address it as uh, practitioners uh, and uh, what can we really do about it or how we ought to think about it? It's challenging and there aren't clear answers. Uh, and we might just start with the hardest question. And uh, again, there isn't a clear answer. You could spend a semester, if not your lifetime, thinking about this. And that is, what is our, first of all, do we have an obligation morally or ethically to correct for people who are born into or suffer unlucky circumstances? And if we do have that, how far, to what extent does that obligation extend? If you polled 100 people in a room, they'd probably get at least 50 different answers. Uh, and it's important to just acknowledge that up front. Our job today isn't to answer the question, but just to ask it because that's the kind of question you ask when you start to think about social justice and medicine. What is grounding this concern for social justice? Where it comes from a lot of different strains. There's a very rich, long, millennia-long religious tradition, whether it's in Christianity or other religions, that espouses to have a special concern for the people who are worse off than not. If you're not religious, uh, there are certainly very strong secular traditions to be worried about justice. Uh, the most famous American philosopher to talk about it politically was John Rawls. He had a theory of justice and he asked people to imagine that at the time a society was organized, if we all had a veil of quote-unquote ignorance, meaning we couldn't see where we were going to be stationed in this society that was about to be created when, we, uh, when it started, um, we would probably want the society's rules. So we had complete no, completely no idea of how we were entering into the society. We could enter at a level of extreme poverty or no resources. We could enter at a middle level. We could enter at a very high level. If we didn't have that knowledge uh, and we wanted to organize what we thought was a just or a fair or a society just simply that we would like to live in, we would want to organize the rules around that society to account for the fact that we would want help, we would want support if we were in fact the worst off, born into that situation worst off. And so that is sometimes called the difference principle in Rawls' theory of justice. But the idea again is something that most people can understand. If you don't know where you're going to be placed in a society and, it, and you're ignorant of that beforehand, like all, for example, babies are, uh, we ought to have a society, if we worry about justice, that accounts for the chance that you're going to be end up in a, a difficult station initially uh, and provide you with opportunities to rise above your circumstances.
So let's try to ground our um, somewhat abstract discussion of justice uh, with a case. So imagine that you have two patients who enter your outpatient clinic with the same clinical problem of uncontrolled hypertension. One of the patients comes to you and they have the same blood pressure and it looks like they have the same, um, uh, same otherwise uh, quote unquote medical profile. So nothing else really very distinguishing about them. However, one of them comes from you from a very secure social situation, meaning that they have a steady, secure job, generate an excellent salary, they have good health insurance, they have a stable home life, they have access to healthy food choices, they have access to gyms and exercise facilities, and they avail themselves of all of those things. So they don't have uh, typical um, major life stressors. The other patient comes to you, and that patient is unemployed, has severe major life stressors, including housing insecurity, food insecurity. There is, they live in a they live in a place that is frequently um, uh, subject to um, violence in the community, uh, and in many objective ways have a worse off situation socially. So. How do we prioritize resources in this case? Should we even think about prioritizing resources? Because you can argue that one person is suffering from social injustice or unfairness, and for the sake of the purposes of this case, it's not these, these conditions of uh, injustice or unfairness are out of, largely, out of this person's control. Uh, they didn't ask for that. They've tried to change their life circumstances. They are stuck in a very difficult place. So are we validated, should we, should we think that there's a moral obligation to attend to those social injustices in a way that um, uh, divert some resources towards the patient who has that, those challenges uh, and spend potentially less time or, or less uh, resources on the patient who has not suffered those circumstances of social injustice? You can see this is a hard question and there aren't going to be easy answers. So we have to ask ourselves how and what in terms of prioritizing the resources. So more physician time, do we spend an hour with the patient who has the social uh, challenges and only 20 minutes with the patient who doesn't have those challenges? Do we provide more intensive follow-up, meaning we schedule five more appointments uh, right then and there for the patient with the social challenges and only one planned follow-up, maybe two months versus you know, the next five weeks in a row for the other patient? Uh, do we, are we obligated to do more as an advocate, meaning uh, get social workers involved, do the extra work outside of the clinical co context to bring some supports to the patient who has these social challenges? These are not easy questions to answer, and you can imagine, again, that there are a lot of different um, responses to these challenges. Uh, but they're the kinds of questions you ask when you frame social justice into the uh, equation of providing medical care to people. Equality. So I, I want to not elaborate too much more on that case, I want to step back again and talk a little bit more abstractly uh, about um, uh, some ideas about what we mean when we talk about social justice. And I, and I mentioned earlier in the uh, conversation that people often talk about equality when they talk about social justice. And I, and I think that it's important that we 
have some clarity uh, that um, equality probably isn't the primary concern when we're talking about social justice, and, and I'll speak to that in a minute, but people often equate or think about equality in outcomes or welfare between people, and they say that's a just society. Uh, and this is because we worry about reducing inequalities in health between groups or persons that don't stem from any sort of legitimate reason. But concern for the worst off is really different than a pure concern for equality. And what do I mean by that? Well, it helps sometimes to think about some concrete examples. Raising the position or making the worst off better uh, can reduce inequality, but it doesn't always have to do so. So you can imagine two different scenarios. The first is, is that the only way to raise the worst off uh, would be a situation where you also make the better off better. Uh, and this is a very um, deep theory in uh, American economics that has a lot of resonance, whether you agree with it or not. It is the notion that a rising tide raises all people, uh, meaning it doesn't matter if you're at the top already or at the bottom. If the whole tide is rising, everybody is better off. That may, in fact, make people more unequal, but as long as the people who are worst off are getting better, you are uh, achieving a just outcome. Debatable, but that's a notion that is uh, very deeply believed in, in many parts of uh, our country politically. The other idea about um, equality and how it isn't quite what we mean when we talk about social justice is, is that, and this is again a, a little bit of an academic idea, but it is an important one because it, again it, it, it shows us what we're really concerned about. If the only way to achieve equality between two groups was to make the group that was better off worse off, that seems like a perverse outcome. So imagine that you have a society that has half of its population as blind and half of the population as seeing. There's no way to change the blindness of the blind people. But you could equalize everybody by blinding the people who can see. When most people hear that, they think that's an absurd idea, and we would never want to achieve equality by making people in better standing worse off. What we want to do is figure out what we can do to make the people who are worse off better. In the absence of being able to give them sight, we have to come up with some other mechanisms. Again, sounds a little bit academic, but it really, I think, hopefully brings home the point that when we're talking about social justice, we're not necessarily talking about strict equality. We're talking about an eye and a mind towards helping the worst off, and hopefully in the bargain, reducing some healthcare inequalities, but not necessarily hoping for an achievement of pure equality. So hopefully you're okay and comfortable with the idea that when we're worried about social justice, we're really worried about something like prioritizing people who are in a worse position and not so much with equality. And so in the case of healthcare, we can say that we would might argue that there is a greater moral value to benefiting people who are worse off. Uh, and um, the greater the undeserved health deprivation or need that an individual patient suffers, the greater is their claim to have it alleviated. These are some grounding rationales for worrying about the worst off. And what this means practically is, is that we ought to think about ways to divert more resources, direct more resources to the worst off. Operationalizing Social Justice there are a lot of challenging questions when we think about operationalizing a principle of social justice, and I'm going to 
try to spend the last little bit of this talk uh, just raising those questions without, again, necessarily answering them. It's important for you to think about them in your spare time when you try to think about social justice. So, first question is, who are the worst off? I gave you an example, but maybe you don't agree that having those social circumstances really are the important criteria for being worst off. We can think of other criteria as being the worst off somebody who is physically worse off, such as being severely disabled, is it the overall well-being that matters, such as being very poor and having no uh, social supports? Or is it having the worst health, meaning that you're the sickest? Any one of those claims has, uh, I think, an ac a, a, um, a justifiable claim to being worse or worse off relative to some other, uh, relatively speaking, beneficial situation. It's not clear when we talk about social justice which one of those should get priority or some mix of them. And the point here is, is that you have to think about worst off very globally and think about a whole number of parameters that might inform how we're thinking about who is worst off. And that also will determine what we might do about it. So that's, a, that's one challenge for social justice, practicing social justice. The other challenges, as we just mentioned in our little case example, is, is how much priority do we give to the worse off? So if we give absolute priority, I mean we pour, pour all of our resources, maybe not even all, but a lot of our resources into those who are the worst off, there is a risk of what is called a bottomless pit problem. If we use very great amounts of resources, and those resources only produce a limited or marginal gains uh, in health outcomes, are we really, we're not probably respecting this principle of utility that we talked about before that ought to matter, at least somewhat in our calculus. And if we're really doing harm uh, in that sense to a broader population, it should give us pause about thinking about priority. Now, we live in a, a very resource-rich world, and so this, again, may sound like more of an academic debate to social justice warriors, and I definitely respect that. But it's something to think about. It, it, even if we say that there are enough resources now to do much better than we are for the worst off, that doesn't answer the question of how much priority at the end of the day do the worst off get in a world of some scarce resources. So if we come back to our case, uh, and this is probably the hardest challenge uh, uh, for physicians specifically, or care providers at the point of care, is, is there's just a professional conflict we face when um, we want to and we espouse to treat all of our patients, quote unquote, equally at the point of care. And yet if we have this commitment or concern to rectify or address unfairness or injustice in society, how do we manage those two? Because it feels equally problematic to say the patient who has all of these resources gets less than uh, the patient who has no resources in terms of our attention and our care. If you're going to justify that, you have to be willing to you know, uh, take a risk and uh, live in a slightly less comfortable area than most mainstream American medicine is practiced. It feels somehow uncomfortable or disconcerting to say, uh, I'm going to treat two patients with exactly the same, quote unquote, exactly the same medical problem differently because one is poor and one is uh, well off. So my last uh, little bit of uh, discussion on social justice, I just want to touch on the fact that um, the applicability of social justice concerns to neonatal medicine or neonatology is, uh, again, dampened, much like in the case of scarce resources. When you practice in an ICU setting, it's one of the few places that 
uh, it almost feels like you never have to worry about issues of scarce resources or justice uh, or, or social justice because everybody who comes into your ICU and is admitted as a sick baby generally gets access to everything that's available uh, to try to keep them alive and to uh, have them survive. They get the ventilator, they get the uh, medications for their heart, they get the surgeries, and nobody generally speaking in our society stops and says who's going to pay for that or we don't have enough of this medicine to give to this baby for this condition. That's a really luxuriant and wonderful position to be in and um, in neonatal medicine and in general in ICU medicine it's sort of the most removed from these acute concerns of um, social justice once you've entered into the system and that's really the key consideration. If you haven't entered into the system, meaning that you haven't been triaged to the point where you're actually in an ICU as a baby, there are all sorts of social determinants that may prevent you from getting there. If you're born in a uh, you know, very uh, marginalized community that doesn't access health care regularly, maybe you don't even end up in the NICU before you've uh, suffered some life-ending event or something like that, or you don't have access to the resources to... Uh, be able to actually deliver in an institution that can get a sick baby to the ICU. So those things are out of our direct control as providers of neonatal medicine, but they certainly inform this concern about social justice. So the other end of that is, is when patients leave our ICU, and if they're leaving to go home or go to circumstances that, again, bring into play questions of justice, those are real concerns that typically speaking, practitioners of neonatal ICU medicine aren't very well equipped to address. There are social workers, there are other uh, groups uh, within a hospital or institution that may help. Uh, there's certainly a primary care community, but again, it falls a little bit out of the domain of the practice of neonatal medicine, and it's something that we ought to be cognizant of, acknowledge our limitations about, and um, think about what we might do more if it's a pressing concern in our practice. So my conclusion for all of you is just to uh, acknowledge that as practitioners, you often feel powerless to change background conditions, and that is a perfectly respectable place to sit, if not an uncomfortable place to sit. But uh, I would just challenge all of us uh, to think about the fact that passive acceptance of circumstances that feel unjust or feel unfair is a choice. You can choose to be active, you can choose to be an advocate, whether it's in your community, whether it's in your institution, whether it's in your uh, domain of practice, or whether it's politically. It's your choice to choose to accept or not accept the circumstances. And that is fundamentally an ethical and moral choice. And it's up to you to decide uh, how much energy and time you want to spend on challenging issues where reasonable people can disagree. And it's also perfectly okay for reasonable people to disagree because there are clear trade-offs and importantly held human values in this area, and there are rarely easy answers. And I thank you for your time. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.